everyone, welcome back to another episode of Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery and General Podcast. I am Al, and today we're going to be continuing our look at legendary weapons uh, remaining within the British Isles. As last couple episodes, we took a look at some of the weapons from the various stories of King Arthur and his knights, as well as some weapons from Irish mythology. Today, we're going to be taking a look at weapons from England and Scotland. Now, if you go back to my episode where I talked about weapons from Italy, France, and Spain, you might recall that I mentioned some of those weapons do actually exist, or at least there are physical representations that are believed to be or contain parts from the original weapon. We're going to be continuing that trend today as several of the swords I'll be talking about uh, later on do actually exist. Though a couple of the weapons we're going to be talking about are strictly either uh, mythological or from literature. So again, there's no physical representations of these weapons. It was a dark and stormy night, and the hosts of the Queens of the Damned podcast had just gathered around the fire with their tomes of forgotten lore. Don't forget the wine! And a lot of wine, much of which had already been imbibed. For her part, Miranda was discussing... A history of Frankenstein, from its conception to Karloff's beloved role as the monster. And Rachel would continue with... Vincent Price. Like, everything about Vincent Price... And as the fire died down, Nikki would conclude the evening with something related to gothic literature, probably. You know me so well. Do you like listening to three women debate about the cultural significance of the horror genre? And also axe murders. I do love a good old-timey axe murder story. Then Queens of the Damned, a horror podcast, is the show for you. Find us on Apple Podcast, Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere you can download a podcast. Visit us at queensofthedamnedpodcast.wordpress.com, qotdpodcast.podbean.com, or email us at qotdpodcast at gmail.com for more details about our monthly horror giveaways. Stay spooky! So let's start by taking a look at Robin Hood. He's perhaps the second most well-known figure from British folklore after King Arthur. Various stories have been told about him, and some of the earlier ones have their roots in the, the 12 to 1300s. Also like King Arthur, different elements of his tale have been added and expanded upon by several different authors. Perhaps one reason for all these different tales is that there's a theory out there that Robin Hood may not have actually been a specific person, but rather it may have been an alias used by several different people. Now, there have been some attempts to determine if there truly was a historical Robin Hood or at least someone who may have inspired the tales, but at least as far as I was able to tell from my research... There's no historical evidence that there's anyone that we can confidently say was either the real Robin Hood or the inspiration for this character. Probably one of the most well-known characters 
outside of Robin Hood, of course, from this particular legend is Little John. And he does appear in some of the earliest stories about this hero. So he's been there pretty much from the beginning. However, a lot of the other characters we associate with the Robin Hood legend came much later. It's possible that some of the other traditions about Robin Hood may have developed in the May plays that were used to celebrate spring. And this is where Maid Marian might have her roots, and possibly she may have been originally pictured as a shepherdess-type figure. And there's some people that think maybe she was even seen as a stand-in for the Virgin Mary. Friar Tuck is another later addition to the legend. He is usually portrayed in popular culture as being overweight and jovial. So while sometimes he is portrayed in that manner, there are some stories that do portray Friar Tuck as being physically fit and just as capable in combat as Robin Hood and the other Merry Men were. There have also been a number of crazy theories about Robin Hood. Uh, One of them is that Robin and the Sheriff of Nottingham may be representational of the Holly King and the Oak King. So the Holly and the Oak King are seen as the personification of the battle between winter and summer. Another theory is that he might be a reinterpretation of the Green Man, which comes from his fondness for living in the woods and and wearing green. The Green Man is often seen as a personification of nature or an aspect of a fertility god. I remember back in high school reading a book that tried to connect stories about Robin Hood to stories about fairies and burial mounds. Now, from what I can remember, the author was trying to argue that there may have been a pygmy race that inhabited the British Isles before the ancestors of uh, today's English came there. And since this was a race of people who were significantly shorter and not as physically powerful as the invaders, they couldn't handle them in a direct face-to-face confrontation. So when war broke out, they would have to rely on attacking from a distance with bows and arrows or using traps. And of course, they would try to hide in the forest so they could use the, you know, they could camouflage themselves and use that to their advantage. Now, as far as how burial mounds get worked into this, the while that, I know there is, uh, in some Irish stories, there is the tradition of fairies inhabiting burial mounds, but the author was arguing that they may have built their homes in these mounds and underground in order to avoid detection. Though, as far as I know, that theory has been largely uh, discredited by scholars. Eventually, all these different stories and tales would be combined into a unifying narrative that brings us the story many of us are familiar with today. That of a man, sometimes a noble, sometimes a commoner, uh, sometimes a man who did go off to fight in the Crusades, who assembles a band of outlaws to fight against corrupt and greedy landowners, 
he assists the poor, wins the heart of Maid Marian, participates in an archery contest, and helps the rightful king retake his throne. Like the story of King Arthur, Robin Hood has been adapted countless times in many different forms of media, including movies, TV shows, and video games. Probably one of my favorite reimaginings of the Robin Hood story is a comedy film by Mel Brooks called Robin Hood, Men in Tights. I mean, it's a funny movie, and, well, it it does have Carrie Elwes in it, who some of you may remember played the Dread Pirate Roberts in uh, The Princess Bride. It also has a lot of good one-liners. One of my favorites is when they were trying to sneak into the castle. Uh, One of them was like, let's get out of these women's clothes so we can go get into our tights. And then there was another one where Prince John asks Robin Hood why he thinks the people will follow him. And he replies, and I apologize, I can't really do an English accent, but he's like, unlike other Robin Hoods, I can speak with an English accent. Also, another one of my favorite scenes was when he loses the archery contest. He's like, wait a second, I get another shot. It's in the script. And then everyone, you know, reaches under their chairs and pulls out their, uh, you know, the script and they're reading and like, he gets another shot and they're cheering. And then uh, the guy playing Prince John is like, he gets another shot. So as I said, I highly recommend going out and seeing uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights if you can. I don't know if it's on Netflix right now, but if you go to your local like Walmart or video store, I'm sure you could probably pick it up for a reasonable price. Another thing that's interesting to note is that in 1953, during the height of the Cold War, McCarthyism, and the Red Scare, Indiana Republicans tried to get all references of Robin Hood removed from school textbooks and curriculums. They claimed that his actions of stealing from the rich to give to the poor promoted communism. Because you have to remember at this time during the, the Cold War, that was one of the main pieces of political propaganda we saw out there. You know, people, you know, wanting us, telling us to be wary and to be watchful because you never know when that new next door neighbor of yours could actually be a communist. And, you know, we were always told to, you know, be aware of the, you know, the Red Scare. And also this was a time of blacklisting where, If Senator McCarthy thought that you might not be patriotic enough and if you might actually be a communist, he would put you on this blacklist, which pretty much made it extremely difficult for someone to find employment. So if you go back to episode 60, I actually did an entire episode on the Cold War and how you can run a campaign inspired by that particular time period. While this action by the Republicans did lead to a counter-protest of sorts called the Green Feather Movement. Several students at the University of Bloomberg bought chicken feathers, dyed them green, and passed them around. The main purpose of this movement was to protest censorship, and it ended up working as the 
uh, they were not required to remove any references of Robin Hood. Now, there was at least one attempt to try to introduce Robin Hood-like characters into Dungeons & Dragons. Back in 2nd edition, uh, there is a book called the Complete Ranger's Handbook, and they did introduce in that a character kit called the Forest Runner, which was pretty much uh, a Robin Hood archetype that you could introduce into your campaign. Now, as far as weapons, Robin Hood was most known for using a sword, a quarterstaff, and a longbow. Most likely the sword that he probably would have used would have been either like a short sword or an arming sword. But again, he's most well known for his skill with the bow. Now, as far as I could tell from my research, his bow really didn't have a name and I couldn't find anything about any magical or supernatural abilities being attributed to this weapon. But I still think it could be a a bow of, or at least it should be, a bow of exceptional quality. Another idea, you might want to make it unstringable by a lesser man, similar to Odysseus's bow from Greek mythology. Now, in the versions of D&D I have, uh, that I'm, at least that I'm most familiar with, uh, basic first and second edition, not really a lot in the way of specialized magic bows. So I think we could, though, if we did make a bow of Robin Hood, We could give it the abilities of two different types of magical crossbows, the crossbow of speed and crossbow of accuracy. The crossbow of speed allows the user to fire off a shot at the start of the round uh, if he's not surprised. So I could see that being a good ability and maybe even giving the user an extra attack. And as far as the crossbow of accuracy's power... The main power with that weapon is that the user treats all ranges as short ranges because there is an optional rule where the game master can assign penalties when attacking something further away. Because usually when you are using a bow, the further something, any missile weapon in general, the further something is away from you, the harder it is to hit. The next weapon I'd like to talk about is... Chrysaor, which I probably am not pronouncing that correctly, but this weapon is from a poem written in the 1500s by Edmund Spencer called The Fairy Queen. This poem takes place over several sections called books, and each book contains stories about knights and various virtues. The main protagonist of the poem is a wizard named Archimago, who specializes in deception as he tries to make the knights fail in their various tests. He is seen as being symbolic of religious hypocrisy and a criticism of the leadership of the Catholic Church at the time. Chrysior is the golden sword of a knight named Sir Artigel, the Knight of Justice. It was said to have been used by Jupiter in his fight against the Titans, as described in uh, these couple of verses from the poem. Now, before I read them, I do want to admit I did modify the text slightly from the original version just to make it a little easier to read. Which steely brand, to make him dreaded more, she gave unto him 
gotten from her slight, an earnest search where it was kept in store, in Jove's eternal house, unwits of man, since he himself it used in that great fight against the Titans that Wylome rebelled, gainst highest heaven, Chrysior it was height, Chrysior that all other swords excelled, well proven in that same day when Jove those giants quelled. For of most perfect metal it was made, tempered with adamant amongst the same, and garnished all with gold upon the blade, in goodly wise whereof it took his name, and was of no lesser virtue than of fame, for there no substance was so firm and hard, but it would pierce or cleave where so it came, nor any armor could his strike outward, but wheresoever it did land, it thoroughly shard. So basically we're describing a sword that, whenever it hits something, it could shatter and destroy the armor. So as far as how you would stat it out, I would give it a decent bonus, at least plus two or plus three. I mean, it was a sword that belonged to the king of the gods, so it has to be a pretty good weapon. But I think more importantly, I would give it the ability to ignore armor, because again, it was said that it could, wherever it landed, it would shred the armor. So I would say that when you attack someone with it, the only defensive bonuses they get are bonuses from dexterity, skills, and magic. So again, it would just totally ignore any armor class bonus that comes from the physical armor that you're wearing. Now, I would also give it a similar characteristic from Sturm's sword, the Bright Blade, from the Dragonlance series. Now, as I recall, they mentioned in that series that the sword would not break unless the wielder breaks first. And the reason I thought about that is because, again, the uh, knight using it was supposed to be a knight of justice, which is actually just reminds me a lot of that particular character. Though on an unrelated note, I always wondered what type of sword they really intended the Bright Blade to be. The game supplements of the time, or at least the ones I've seen, always listed it as a two-handed sword plus three, though the miniature of Sturm made by Rall Partha, as well as the most of the artistic depictions I've seen of him in the various TSR products of the day, did show it as being a one-handed sword. So that's just something I've always wondered about, so I'm not sure if there was just a miscommunication between the people who are working on the on the, the modules and then the people who are doing the artwork. Because uh, as I recall, okay, because it's been a while since I've actually read the Dragonlance books. So unfortunately, I don't remember how they depicted it in there. It, I think they always depicted it in there more as a, as a long sword, but I'm not sure. Like, like I said, it's been a long time since I've read the Dragonlance Chronicles series. So again, very good book series. So if you've never read... Uh, Dragonlance Chronicles, highly recommend go out to your local used bookstore or hobby shop, see if they've got a copy of it. Uh, again, Dragons of Autumn Twilight, Dragons of Winter Night, and Dragons of Spring Dawning. Uh, three very good books. Well, as we move on, the rest of the swords we'll be talking about do exist. 
Um, so this is where working them into a fantasy campaign can be quite challenging, mainly because a lot of these swords are not exceptionally ancient. Uh, some of them only go back a few hundred years. So there's not really a great deal of folklore behind these weapons. Now, the next five swords I'm going to talk about are all part of England's crown jewels. I could see working weapons like these into a campaign similar to TSR's Birthright campaign setting. I don't have much hands-on experience with Birthright. I'm familiar with it. Uh, the only hands-on experience I've had with it is back when I used to run RPGA events when Gen Con was in Milwaukee. I remember there was an event that uh, they were running which did take place in the Birthright setting. Now, the reason that Birthright is different from a lot of your standard D&D settings is players were encouraged to be playing characters from divinely imbued royal character lines. So, well, in most D&D campaigns, you'd probably have to get your game master's permission if you wanted to play like a prince or a noble. In Birthright, it was almost expected that you'd be playing these these royal characters that would have these uh, divine powers. So if that's how you wish to work them into a campaign, again, not necessarily a historical campaign set in the contemporary British Isles, but uh, maybe in a campaign setting inspired by that particular time, I would see maybe using them a bit more as a plot device, because since these swords would be so important to the the monarchy, they would be very well guarded. But it might be a useful plot device if these swords do get stolen and you have to go out and find them, or maybe they're only supposed to be used for a very specific occasion. The first is a two-handed sword of state. So this sword is usually carried in the royal processions and it represents the monarch's presence. The hilt has a lion and a unicorn on it. And this particular sword was made in 1678. Honestly, when I saw one of the pictures of how it was carried, it actually made me think that you could have stat it out as a plus four defender sword. I don't know, it was just the way it was being carried made me think of a protective function. So that's why I think uh, statting that one as a defender would actually be pretty reasonable. There's also a one-handed sword of the state, and this one was made for the coronation of George IV in 1821. So this sword is decorated with jewels and also has three symbols on it. A rose to represent England, a shamrock to represent Ireland, and a thistle to represent Scotland. Now the pictures I show it it's a, a dedicated one-handed sword. It's not like some of your later long swords where you could probably use it one or two-handed. So I would probably stat this one out as a short sword. Not really sure what powers I would give it. I mean, since it is jeweled and it's kind of a pretty sword, I would maybe give it uh, some bonuses to reaction rolls, maybe give it the ability to cast like a charm person once or twice a day. Just because I could see this sword is, since it looks so cool and so pretty, 
inspiring other people. Well, next are two swords of justice. There's sword of justice to the spirituality and sword of justice to the temporality. Both are one-handed swords, so I would stat them out as long swords, and they represent the monarch's duty to defend the church and the people. So again, we see these weapons as being symbolic as the king or queen's role as the leader of the military, as well as a defender of the faith. The fifth sword is the one that I was actually able to find the most interesting information on, and this is called Kirtana, the Sword of Mercy. It's first mentioned in 1236 in a record on the coronation of Eleanor of Provence. Other legends say it belonged to Tristan, one of the Knights of the Round Table. According to that legend, the tip of the sword was damaged when it got stuck in the skull of an opponent named Morholt, who was an Irish warrior. Another tradition places Kirtana as having belonged to Edward the Confessor, who was born in the early part of the 11th century and died in 1066. The current sword was made for the coronation of Charles I in 1626. Now, this weapon is also known as Kurt. Uh, some legends say it was forged by Wayland the Smith alongside Joyus and Durendal. It was also believed to have been owned by an 8th century warrior named Ogier the Dane. Stories about this warrior mention he did have a short sword. The sword was known by a couple of other names that derive from the French word corte, which means short. The stories about this sword with Ogier said that he was about to kill the son of Charlemagne to avenge the murder of his own son, but a voice from heaven told him to show mercy. So in some variations of the tale, they say that an angel broke off the tip to prevent unjust killings. Other versions say that Ogier had actually struck the blow, but the tip was broken off as the sword landed. So the Sword of Mercy, the tip is broken off to represent the mercy of the state. So as far as how you would stat this one out, there's a couple ways I think you could do it. Uh, again, it would be a short sword, but I would say maybe make it inflict damage as a blunt weapon, even though it is sharp. Because in, well, some role-playing systems, you it's easier to help someone who gets brought down to zero hit points from blunt damage as opposed to piercing damage from like a, a sword or an arrow. Because, well, if you stab someone or cut someone, you have to worry about blood loss, where usually it's thought of in most systems that when you knock someone out with a blunt weapon, they're just knocked unconscious for a short time, so they're not in as much danger of dying. So, you know, maybe that's a hint that the U.S. needs to take from uh, the U.K. We don't have Swords of State over here, so I don't know. I just think it would be pretty cool if the U.S. actually had a Sword of the State, but as far as I know, we don't. Well, the next two Swords would be best suited for a post-apocalyptic campaign. And that's because these next two swords, again, did belong to historical people, 
And the stories around these next two weapons don't really have any supernatural, religious, or mythological elements to them. I think if you were to introduce these into a campaign, the power bestowed by these swords wouldn't come from the weapon itself, but would actually be somewhat of a placebo. It's because of the knowledge that you're using a sword that was used by a legendary warrior. Now, if you did want to have these swords as actually being magic, you can have it that these swords have a form of contagious magic, which I talked about way back in episode 169. You know, I actually had to go back and uh, check which episode that was before I uh, recorded because like, I've just done so many episodes. It's like it, and I know I've talked mentioned this here and there. It's just when you've done so many episodes, sometimes it kind of it, it gets hard to to keep straight when you talked about certain topics, but well, what is contagious magic? So this is a belief that when someone who's really good at something has been using an item for an extended period of time, they can impart some of their attributes or talents within that item. Like one of the examples I usually like to give is, let's say that you are trying to learn how to hunt or you're trying to learn how to fish and maybe your, your grandfather or grandmother, you know, was a really good hunter or a really good fisherman. And whenever they went out hunting or fishing, maybe they wore a lucky hat. So a form of contagious magic might be if next time you go out hunting or fishing, you ask if you can borrow that hat. And the reason why is you're hoping that your grandparents' skill at hunting or fishing has been imbued in that hat. So by wearing it while you're going out hunting and fishing would impart some of that skill onto you. Now, in any case, even if you decide that these weapons aren't going to have magic, I think they should at least be given an attack bonus due to quality. So the first sword I'd like to talk about is the sword of Jack Churchill. Now, as far as I know, he didn't really have a name for his sword. And the specific type of sword it would have been is a Scottish basket-hilted broadsword. Jack's full name was John Malcolm Thorpe Fleming Churchill, nicknamed Fighting Jack Churchill, or some people also called him Mad Jack. He lived from September 16th of 1906 to March 8th of 1996. And this is a true story. Just to give you an idea of how badass Jack Churchill was, when I was doing my research, my web browser crashed three times while I was trying to look up information on him. That's how badass he is. Firefox had to work up the courage to look up information on him. Have you ever known anyone who was so badass that the mere mention of their name causes browsers to crash? Seriously, read his life story. I hear Chuck Norris reads Jack Churchill stories for inspiration. Now, what makes him remarkable is that he saw combat in both World War I and World War II. And he was known to go into battle, not just with his claymore, but also with a longbow and freaking bagpipes. Seriously, 
he is the only person known to have taken down an enemy with a longbow in a modern war. So as far as how you would stat this sword out, I would definitely give the wielder immunity to fear. And I would also give him a bonus to armor class and saving throws due to the number of situations that Jack was able to survive. I do remember reading one story about how his unit was attacked by mortar fire and he was the only one that escaped unscratched. Or at least maybe he had very minor wounds. Pretty much everyone else with him was either dead or seriously wounded. That's why I think that the sword should give you a good degree of survivability and give you those saving throw and armor class bonuses. But like I said, go take a look at uh, his life if you ever have a chance. As I said, he was just incredible. And I remember one of his quotes was, an officer who goes into battle without a sword isn't properly dressed. You gotta respect someone who <laughs> who says that. And it's actually kind of funny. I remember when he heard that uh, the World War II had ended, he said something to the effect of, "It wasn't if it wasn't for those damn Yanks, we could have kept the war going another 10 years. So, like I said, very much a very incredible individual and not someone I would want to mess with. The last two swords I'll be talking about today are from Scotland. Unfortunately, I couldn't find a lot of information about any famous Scottish swords or swords from uh, folklore or Scottish legends. So I did include these. That's why I decided to include these two swords in this particular episode. First is the sword of William Wallace. Now, I'm sure a lot of you out there have probably seen the Mel Gibson movie Braveheart. So when we envision Wallace's sword, forget about Braveheart. Uh, from what I understand, there's a, quite a bit of historical inaccuracies in that movie, and the sword is one of them. The style of sword that you see in there, the big two-handed claymore with the, I think it's called a quafoil uh, design on the, the cross guard, that actually didn't come into use until well after Wallace's death. So if we look at the time period in which he lived, it would have been closer to a type of sword that would have seen use in the 11th or 12th centuries. So it was probably closer to a long sword in that it would have a straight blade, uh, probably with a fuller in it, and a straight cross guard with a round pommel, as that was a popular style at the time. There is a sword attributed to him on display at the Wallace Monument, though there is some doubt as to whether or not this truly is William Wallace's sword. We do know from historical records that the hilt, handle, and pommel were replaced in 1505. Also, from uh, one uh, website I was reading, it appears that the blade is actually three separate swords that were welded together to make a larger sword. You know, so it is certainly possible that some of the material in there could have been a part of a sword that William Wallace used, but as far as the entire sword itself, would not have been used by that particular person. Now, due to the size of the weapon, there is some speculation that Wallace would have needed to be close to seven feet tall 
in order to wield the weapon properly. So what abilities might we give to it? I would certainly give it a fear effect on any opponents. But I think its main power should be, it should give you a bonus to defend against charm, spells, enchantment spells, and mind control. And again, it would strengthen your will because of Wallace's desire to fight for independence. The last sword I'd like to talk about is the Sword of the State. And this sword is part of the Honors of Scotland. It was given to James IV in 1507 as a gift from Pope Julius II. The blade is three and a quarter feet long and has images of St. Peter and St. Paul. The hilt and handle are decorated with acorns, oak leaves, and the cross guard is decorated with dolphins. This sword is an example of a blessed sword. So it's not a unique item, as there's actually several of these types of swords that were known to have been made, though, again, not all of them are known to have survived to the current day. These swords were given to Catholic monarchs by the Pope, along with a blessed hat. So these items would be blessed by the Pope on Christmas Eve, in Rome at St. Peter's Basilica. Now these swords were always a two-handed sword, and the tradition may stem from Peter protecting Jesus from arrest by using a sword to cut off a guard's ear. So as far as how he would stat this out, definitely a two-handed sword, with the and I would give it the powers of a Holy Avenger plus five. However, this should not be your average garden variety Holy Avenger. We have to look at the ceremony surrounded it. These swords were made specifically for kings, and they were blessed by the Pope on one of the most important Christian holidays in one of the most important locations in Roman Catholicism. So I think it would be appropriate to grant it additional holy powers. So I think some maybe the ability to cast a few low-level cleric spells would be appropriate. You know, just some of the basic ones like protection from evil or uh, cure light wounds, bless, things like that. Well, as I said, I couldn't really find many other Scottish swords, but one last thing I'd like to mention, just because I found it interesting. There is a tradition called the Dirk Dance. Now, a dirk is a long dagger that was popularly carried by uh, the Scots. A dirk dance usually involved two dancers armed with dirks, though it was sometimes done with just a solo practitioner. And dances like these could also be done with other weapons as well. These dances may have been used as a way to train how to use and defend against daggers, similar to the kata that we see in some martial arts. So I could see that as a good drill to uh, work on, uh, again, because uh, just what little I know from knife defense when I was talking, when I was taking a screama, is a lot of it involves knowing how to move and how to get the knife away from you and get yourself in a position where you're less likely to get cut. 
is again in a, a knife defense situation as my Eskrima instructor always liked to say, if someone attacks you with a knife, you're going to get cut. You can't stop that. But you can control where you're going to get cut. So that's why I think it would be actually practical to practice these dances and how they could have uh, been used as a form of training. And that certainly wouldn't have been unique to the Scots either. Uh, for example, just continuing with Eskrima, uh, another one of the things my instructor told us is that back when the Spanish had conquered the Philippines, they forbid the the Filipinos from practicing their martial arts. So what they would do is they would still practice the techniques, but they would disguise them in dances. And in Brazil, uh, I know practitioners of, okay, I think it's, I, I know I don't know if it's pronounced it correctly, but Copiera uh, also would do the same thing where they would hide their techniques in, in these dance-like movements. So there you have it. Uh, look at some weapons from Scottish and English folklore and history. I'd like to thank you all for tuning in and hope you found the information both entertaining and informative. So until next time, have a good evening or morning or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.